Heavenly Father, you know all the ways in which our hearts are desperate for encouragement. And we pray that by your word preached now, we might find it. Find it in you and in your word and in the gospel. Father, you also know all the ways in our hearts in which we ought to seek to repent. Ways in which we've been living in our own wisdom, trusting in our own eyesight, not listening to you in your ways. And to all those ends, Father, would you help us repent? Would you help us see ourselves as you see us? And give us the courage and the heart, the love, the affection for you that would lead to repentance. May the preaching of your word have this effect upon us today. In Christ's name, amen. A warning, a question, and a violence. A warning, a question, and violence. The passage that we're going to look up today, look at today, really breaks down to uh, these three things for us today: a warning for us, a question for us to answer, and violence. Acts is Luke's compilation of God accomplishing His plan to save people from every nation through the unstoppable. Spirit-empowered witness of Jesus. We said this on the very first day when we began to preach through the book of Acts. If you're new to us here, we preach through the Bible book by book. And we are now as a church in the book of Acts. We're preaching through the book of Acts. And we see on every page that Acts is about the unstoppable spread of the gospel to all the nations, the news about Jesus to all nations through his witnesses, the apostles, and then the church who tell other people about Jesus. We keep seeing on every page that it is going, the good news of Jesus is going to the ends of the earth and no one can stop it. Nothing can stop it. And we keep learning as Christians the kinds of challenges that we are going to be facing and how to face them, even as unstoppable as they all are. Well, we picked up the narrative in Acts. We've started to follow a man named Paul. Once named Saul, he met the Lord Jesus Christ. He was on his way to persecute Christians. He wanted to put Christians in prison, considered them blasphemers. He met the Lord Jesus on the road. He was converted. He became a Christian. He began trusting in Jesus as the Lord, as Christ, and instead began doing the very thing he was persecuting other people for. He was running around telling everyone about Jesus. This led Paul all over Asia. This got Paul in trouble in Jerusalem. And now Paul is back in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, and he has been told that he's going to be going to Rome to preach the gospel there. 
So Paul is on the way to Rome, but he has not yet, in our narrative of Paul, not yet left the city of Jerusalem. This is the last moment that we have a narrative in Jerusalem, in Acts. This is the last moment where Paul is ministering, or doing anything in Acts, before he leaves. And that last moment that we have recorded is him before the council of the high priest. The council of the high priest, for just and this is an overgeneralization, just for our clarity, is kind of like the legislative branch, the, ex- the executive branch, and the judiciary branch, all in one branch. They do it all. They're political. They oversee laws. They oversee the religious aspects of Israel. They are in charge of Israel's laws and order. Paul has been arrested for breaking a Jewish commandment, they think. He brought a Gentile, someone who's not a Jew, into the temple. So Paul has been arrested. He has now been taken in captivity of the Romans, actually. He was going to die. They were going to kill him. If the Romans had not taken him over, he would have died. The Romans have him in captivity. The Romans want to know, why in the world do they want to kill this man? Let's let him go. They're going to take him into their Jewish council. Let them hear the case and see what the big deal is. And as we look at Paul's defense and his encounter with the council, as he's about to be booted out of Jerusalem, there is a warning to us, a question for us to answer, and the matter of violence for us to respond to. Let's look first at the warning, what Megan read for us so eloquently. Chapter 23, verse 1 through 5. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, so imagine just saying, talking like this to the president and the Supreme Court at the same time. And Congress is behind them listening. Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest would have been the chief ruler in the room. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. (laughs) And then Paul... I have to confess, my own sweet wife chuckled at the reading of this about two minutes ago. Then Paul, being Paul, I mean, do you just love Paul? I I wish I could be him. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. That is not a compliment. Just in case you were wondering, you know, if you go home and, sweetheart, you just, you remind me of a whitewashed wall. No, don't, don't do that. A whitewashed wall would have been referenced to a tomb that had been painted on the outside but had dead men's bones on the inside. It was an insult. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? In other words, this is a man who has yet to be condemned. There is no decision about him and yet they've had him struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Some senator stands up and says, Do you know that's the president? Don't you know who you're talking to? Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, 
that he was the high priest. There's a lot of ink spilled about what Paul means when he says this. Most commentators suggest Paul would have been able to tell who the high priest was. Because of where he was sitting and what he was wearing and how he came in the room and how people responded to him. And Paul could have previously even met him before and knew exactly who he was. But Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. But some people argue, well, he's not lying, so what does that mean? Neither, neither, either, either way, Paul says, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I wouldn't have done that if I'd known because the law says, and you guys are so concerned about the law. The law says, don't speak evil of a ruler of your people. There's a warning in here for us. There isn't a sentence that says, I'm warning you, or church, be warned. But the warning is in the layers of irony. Notice the council never comes to a judgment on Paul. Paul is ushered out. They never make their decision, or perhaps they usher, you know, execute their decision by their anger. Luke is helping us see that the way this narrative begins, that the council themselves stand condemned under the law because they reject Jesus as the ruler of Israel. This council will be the means of Paul's departure, and that departure from Jerusalem symbolizes Jerusalem and their leaders stand condemned. The gospel of Jesus will now officially, formally go out of Jerusalem to the Gentiles because they, in their council, have rejected Jesus. This is the final example, in the narrative at least, of that terrifying juxtaposition of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. After this trial, this moment, there is no more, there are no more scenes, no more events happening in Jerusalem. We just follow Paul wherever he goes, all the way to Rome, to the end, or Acts 28. This is, as it were, the last words about Jesus before Paul takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. And see how it serves as a warning to any who hear. Luke wants to make sure the reader sees just how utterly and grossly blind this council is. The Jews, as a people, most especially the men in this room, the council, they had Moses. They had the prophets, they had the Psalms, they had the law, and Jesus explains these were all about him. And they had all of these resources pointing toward Jesus. They would have seen and heard of Jesus' miracles, healing the lame, raising a dead girl, providing food for 5,000 people, speaking to demons and demons obeying him. They heard Jesus' words which confounded them and came from a place of personal authority. They heard his testimony. They saw him crucified. They saw him raised from the dead. And then they would have heard testimony after testimony from the apostles themselves after Jesus' ascension the authoritative eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. 
And now Paul stands before them, one who has seen Christ, heard from Christ, been commissioned from Christ the King, the Son, the descendant of David, and they have him struck as well. Of all people, they should be the most eager and able to recognize who Jesus is, and they hate him, and they hate his followers. Most especially Paul, who used to be among their council as a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul suggests he does not know who the high priest is, Yet the message to the reader is the awfulness that the high priests do not know who Jesus is. Ironically, Paul is the one fulfilling the law by his faith in Jesus. The high priest disregards the law, having Paul stricken before he is condemned or judged. Paul, in honoring and revering Jesus as the Christ, is giving honor to the true high priest, the king of Israel, the high priest who ascended in his ascension, went into the heavenly places where he serves as a high priest in heaven. But this high priest will not recognize him as Lord and therefore does not fulfill the law to give honor to the ruler of Israel. This reveals depravity and cold hearts. They have already killed Jesus because he claimed to be God. They have already killed Stephen because he claimed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now they want to kill Paul because Paul wants to go tell the Gentiles about Jesus. Paul wants them to come worship. It's way worse than maybe he brought a Gentile into the temple. He wants to include Gentiles as the people of God. All peoples, all nations are invited in to be the people of God under Jesus dying for their sins. And they hate Paul for that. We should be aware of this in ourselves. This is not something that we are trained to believe or naturally believe about ourselves. But we are very capable of being really, really wrong. Don't you remember the weapons of mass destruction from the early 2000s? Some of you don't because you weren't born. Go back in history a bit. There's an article written in 1904. Just think about this. Next time you're on Highway 130 in Austin, think about this. There was an article written in 1904 that suggested we were down a path of trouble because our brains are incapable of keeping up with all these fast new cars and their dangerous speeds in 1904. Now, I think about that and I think, that's ridiculous. Our brains are incredible. I can go faster than 80. Some people might go, I think he's right. <laughs> we, we shouldn't be doing that. In 1876, Alexander Graham Bell offered to sell his patent for the telephone to Western Union for $100,000. It's about $2.5 billion in their money. 
The president of Western Union declined the offer, suggesting that the new contraption called the telephone was nothing more than a toy. And later, the president of Western Union told his colleagues he would happily pay $25 million for Bell's patent. Is there anything that you might need to reconsider today? Anything. Most especially, might you need to reconsider the truth about Jesus, about him. We all ought to have the sort of heart that David had in Psalm chapter 139. In Psalm 139, David spends about 18 verses saying in various different ways, God, you know me better than I know me. And I think I'm right, but here's how he ends, Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I don't know myself so well, but you do. Please help me have clarity. Friends, that could be about anything. We, we could get a lot of things wrong, like the council gets Jesus wrong, like the council gets Paul wrong. But we most assuredly ought to be thinking about this when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. So this is a warning for us. Look at the sad case of depravity and hardness of heart which rebels against Jesus and his apostles. We tend to think that God is the one who's on the hook for not giving us more witness of himself. And you might consider that so often it is our own hardened hearts which blind us to the truth which God has aptly testified to in his son. They actually think they are following the law when they hit Paul. They think they are following the law by crucifying Jesus. They think they are following the law by stoning Stephen. They think they are following the law by wanting to kill Paul. I could not be more wrong. That's the warning. Here's the question. Chapter 23, 23, beginning in verse 6. And when Paul perceived, Paul is a very perceptive person. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, why did Paul do this? The text tells us he is pers pers perceptive. He also probably talked better than I'm doing right now. He said, I'm here for the matter of the resurrection of Jesus. He just referenced a great debate that was long going in that hall. This would be like walking into Congress today, and they're, they're, they're just five minutes away from voting on next year's budget. And just walking in and saying, I would like to say something. Trump won the election. <laughs> uh, let, me just, let me just put it this way. We're not going to be voting on the budget today. We're going to get distracted. We're going to be, people are going to be summoned and we're going to be arguing, yelling, shouting. This is what Paul has done. He has walked in and set this place on fire. 
Look what it says, verse 7. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. There was a schism between the people. They were torn apart. When Paul walked in, there was one council focused on ripping Paul apart. Paul makes one statement, and the council is ripped apart. Paul is so perceptive, and he's so wise. What was the question? Look at verse 8. For the Sadducees say there's no resurrection. This group of Israelites believe there's no resurrection. There, there's no angels. There, there's no spirit, they say. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees acknowledge all of them. I mean, this helps us see Paul knew what he was doing when he said this. He was hoping for a distraction. Verse 9, a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party, they stood up, and they contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. Listen, the irony of the Pharisees saying to the Sadducees, we can't find anything wrong with Paul. Are you kidding me? They've been finding something wrong with Paul. The whole book and Stephen and all the followers of Christ, that's how clingy they are to this doctrine. They would rather prefer it and save Paul. We find nothing wrong in this man because, listen, listen, Sadducees, we, rather than condemn Paul, we would rather protect our doctrine that maybe a spirit or an angel spoke to him. Maybe that happened. So we can't condemn him because maybe, maybe our doctrine would become untrue. But that's not going to happen. There, there's angels and there's spirits, so we have to entertain that possibility. So this last word of the council about the witness of Jesus... And the Apostle Paul, as from the Pharisees, maybe a spirit spoke to him. You want to talk about a sad conclusion to say about a man who has met the co-creator of the universe. Maybe a spirit spoke to him. It is so ridiculous, the level of this conversation between them. Well, there's a question for us here that we have to answer in our own hearts and minds. What's the question? What's going on? What actually did happen to Paul? What happened to the apostle who said, Jesus is the Son of God, who died on the cross, who rose from the grave? What happens to the apostle who, who has just told the crowd Jesus met me on the road to Damascus. He talked to me. He spoke to me. He can commissioned me and said what I had been persecuting I would now be suffering so here I am we have to make a decision is all of this just hocus pocus spirituality is Christianity basically in the same vein as new age spirituality or was Jesus a man conceived by a virgin and the Holy Spirit, was he a fully righteous man with no sin against God? And he died on the cross, and he rose from the grave, and he ascended into the heavens, where he is now alive forever. Could that be possible? The hope of the resurrection is exactly why Paul was on trial. I'm here, not just being coy with you all and trying to stir up a debate. I am here because of the hope and the resurrection of the dead. 
And they turned it into debate. But Paul was clinging in his life to the hope that Jesus is God's Son, crucified for sinners and risen from the grave. But you have to answer a question. How do you think about Jesus and the message of Paul? Is it true? Do you just totally disregard spiritual things? There's no spirit. There's no angels. There's no, there's no life after death. There's no, there's no waking up from the grave. There's no coming out of the ground. That's ridiculous. Or maybe the Pharisees, who sound better. They sound more spiritual and religious. We believe in angels. We believe in spirits. But they would absolutely reject that Jesus is God's Son, crucified for them, the King of kings, the chief ruler who deserves their allegiance. And not for Paul. Paul said, Jesus is Lord. He's King. He's the Son of God. How do you answer that question? Who is Jesus that Paul's talking about? Then comes the violence. Pick up in chapter 23, verse 10. Then comes the violence. When the dissension became violent, the tribune, these are the Roman guards, the Roman guards are watching this happen. They're, they're, you know, Paul's their prisoner, but he's in the Jewish court. When the dissension became violent, when it got heated and rose up and got intense, the tribune, the Roman guard, afraid that Paul is going to be torn to pieces, their, their prisoner, who they just learned was a Roman citizen, the Jews were going to tear him to pieces. They commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force. You go save Paul's life from the Jews. This is an irony for the rest of chapter 24 through 28. Paul continually has to have his life saved by the Romans. And here from the Jews. I'll take him by force and bring him back into the barracks. Put him back in prison. That's one way to have your life saved. Go to prison. Their response turns to violence. The dissension became so great, so heated. Roman guards thought they were about to tear him to pieces. If you're a Christian, these kinds of things are going to happen to you. You might not be torn into pieces. You might be emotionally torn into pieces, which, you know, in our culture might be even worse. But you tell people about Jesus, and it will get violent. It can get heated. Maybe that's been your response to Christ up to this point. You, are, you get heated about Jesus. You don't like him. You don't like people talking about him. You don't like hearing that he is the Lord, and you ought to submit to him and trust him and believe in Him, that He is the Son of God, and the whole universe is rotating around God's plan in Him, and you don't like that very much. It makes you want to rip something into pieces. What's that about? Where does that come from? What is it about Jesus' words that bother you, about His life? Why don't you just consider the warning that it might be because it's true. Maybe you've encountered this kind of heatedness at someone's door. Maybe a work relationship turned heated because you brought up Jesus. 
Maybe you know that at Thanksgiving next week, if you bring up Jesus, it's going to get heated. Before his death, church, Jesus explained, this is why the Jews sought to kill him. In John 8, 37, he said very simply to them, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. My word finds no place in you. In John 8, 40, a few verses later, he says, you seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth from God because you hated the truth. They could not stand to hear Jesus' words and now Paul, as Jesus said, is in the same boat and it's gotten violent. Remember that when Jesus called Paul to come be a missionary to the Gentiles, he told them, he told Paul, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. So thankful a few years ago as I was serving on ethics committee for our Baptist State Convention to get to host a, a panel on persecution. And one of the first questions uh, that I got to ask another fellow pastor of mine was, should we expect persecution in Texas? And should we, we worry about that here? You know, I mean, we've, uh, we've got conservative government for the most part in most places. Uh, we don't, you know, Texas has a lot of guns and stuff, you know. Should we have to worry about persecution? I didn't ask it just like that, but should we have to worry about persecution in Texas? And the pastor's response was so helpful. Jesus has said that we should all expect persecution wherever we are. That's Matthew, that's First Peter, that's what we have been called to. We've been called to take up your cross and follow me. The call to become a Christian and follow Jesus is a call to come and die with him to lose our lives for his sake. It's very popular right now, though, to claim that your group is the victim group in the world. If you want to get press, get persecuted. One actor actually paid in recent years, actually paid fellow actors $3,500 to fake a racist attack on him. They said because he wanted to be the poster child for hate crime activism. Apparently there's a culture there where that power is that, is, that dynamic is so powerful that someone said, it's worth me paying some friends $3,500 to fake persecute me so that I can get some credibility. It is strange to me. The persecution is a currency in our culture in some ways. There are, of course, really helpful advocates for very real, widespread violence and crimes of many kinds. There are also highly politicized competitions for who can be the worst victim. Thousands gathered, for example, recently for a pro-Palestinian march here in Austin at our capital just a week or two ago. Did you, did you see this? We're in a national discussion right now. Who's the worst victim? Israel or the Palestinians. And if you could be the worst victim, then you should have the biggest voice. Persecution then becomes a kind of validation, credibility. Well, Christians, we should not run around trying to prove that we are the most persecuted people. We should wear our persecution as a personal badge of our validity 
that we're somehow more persecuted than all the other persecuted people in the world. It's not, what, it's not our goal. It's not what we're thinking about here. Yeah, we're persecuted. Our, our goal should not be to leave this passage and go out into the world and go, no, 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 we're the persecuted ones. Y'all should serve us. Y'all should, y'all should give us more attention. You should give us a bigger voice in the government, a bigger voice at work. You should give us that because we're more persecuted. That's not what we're saying here. I want to be careful about that. We shouldn't be found whining. We shouldn't be found complaining. We shouldn't be found using our persecution for political positioning. We should not complain about how people treat us online in order to get attention. About persecution for Christ or anything. Christians, we are going to face hostility. Doors will slam in our face. We will get fired from workplaces. We might be rejected from friendships. Rejected in the culture. Families might split in two. Families in this room have been split because of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said this will happen. If they have persecuted me, Jesus said, they're going to persecute you. Understand that this is going on around the world and it is definitely not unique to us. If you're interested this afternoon, you can just go look around and find story after story after story. Globalchristianrelief.org The Voice of the Martyrs, persecution.com or opendoors.com. Story after story after story all around the world. How do we think about this? How do we respond to this? Colette and I have been to a city in northern India years ago. We are on a mission trip for the summer. There was one city we were told, we will not be sharing the gospel here. Uh, I was in my young 20s, Colette as well. We had three young 20s with us highly uh, Islamic, Hindu, violent culture. And we were told, we are here to rest for a couple of days and then we will go back on our mission in other parts of India. When some of our members took a trip to the UAE years ago, we were instructed at one lunch in particular, the home of an Emirati man, the most powerful in the UAE, the most powerful people, that is, in the UAE, the natives. We were instructed at that lunch how to have a religious conversation in the way that was least likely to get us deported. I once preached in a home in Paxay, Laos, where we were told, when you preach, don't raise your voice. This is going to be your, maybe your first whisper sermon. We had so many people in the home. When I say so many, I mean like 8 or 10, 12 and we were, because of that, an illegal, unsanctioned religious gathering. The next day, we went to see a person's home that had been ransacked because uh, they had heard that there was a Bible there in, in the house. Now, I just mention all these to say, I mean, let me just tell you that if you've never experienced that, here's what I've found. This is just my personal experience. What I've found is that those experiences are not much scarier than going door-to-door in Austin, Texas. It's not. My own fearfulness of will I... And I'm not trying to say anything about Austin, per se. But my own fearfulness of will I speak, will I share, will I talk, it actually follows me everywhere I go. It's really in me. It doesn't matter if you're going to slam a door in my face or threatened to deport me back home. It's the same fear. 
we're going to face it. We're going to face what every Christian is going to face in the world. Fear for our lives, for our livelihood, for our awkwardness, for our social status, for our place in society. And I would say that a lot of what we think is the kind of persecution, quote, they experience outside of the U.S. is actually very similar to the experience here in the U.S. We're not afraid of the consequences so much. We actually be willing to pay them. We're just kind of afraid to speak at all. There's a resolution for all of these things in the last verse of this passage. Something for the warning, something for the question, and something for the violence. In chapter 23, verse 11. They take Paul, the Romans take Paul, they save him from the council. That's his last act, last scene. That's the third act, Paul leaving Jerusalem after this. They were about to rip him to pieces. He gave his testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They wanted him dead. Now he's going to leave. And listen to the last verse of this short saga. The following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. In regard to the warning, those who might be reading this and tempted to agree with the Sadducees, there is no spirit, there's no angels, there's no, there's no such thing as resurrection. Or even at the Pharisees, yeah, there is such thing as resurrection and angels and spirit, but not him, not Jesus. This is a resounding condemnation of those disbeliefs. The irony of ironies in this passage is that they reject the idea of resurrection altogether or they reject the resurrection of Jesus and totally out of their midst, totally in rejection to them, Jesus appears and stands by Paul. There in the council, they're saying to each other, maybe a spirit spoke to him, maybe an angel spoke to him, and that very night, Jesus comes to speak to him. Notice Luke reads very simply here. This is not a dream, as is so important in other parts of the Bible. It says straightforward, the Lord stood by him and spoke to him. Jesus who died with the title above his head, the King of Jews. They mocked him as the King of Jews. He's not dead. He is very much alive. And he is the King. He is the Heavenly High Priest. He is the very living Son of God who will never die again. Are you denying the truth of Jesus while he stands alive today? That is part of the presence of Jesus. What the presence of Jesus with Paul means. They missed him, but here he is. The Sadducees didn't even believe in resurrection, and here he is. The Pharisees would suggest Paul's hearing spiritual voices, but here is Christ the Lord standing with him. What a condemnation on Israel's rejection and spitting out of Paul. Jesus ought to be with them. 
His people. That He came to save His own. But He stands with Paul as Paul goes to the Gentiles. Would you honor the ruler of the world? Might you consider if you have not yet putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that maybe you've missed Him. That He is the ruler. They did not want Him to be. He is Christ. He is the King of kings. He is the Son of God. He is the Lord of all. He is risen from the grave. Could you have been wrong about that? There's many things to consider about this, but one of the things you have to do first is just consider maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is true. And then to the question, is this a spirit? Is there resurrection or is there not? Here is Paul standing next to Jesus. Did Jesus rise from the dead that night? Now some people might read this and think, well, it was in the night and it was Paul and you know, as uh, my children really love to make fun of me when I say things that they think are cool. But that's, uh, you know, Jesus just meeting Paul by himself in the night. That's, that sounds sus to me. It means suspicious, just in case you are not tracking. Oh, friends. If that sounds suspicious to you and you would look for some credibility about Jesus actually having raised from the dead, this is just the beginning. This is just a very poignant, additional, as if we needed more visitation of Jesus to the Apostle Paul to bring about condemnation on this council that he's there. In the Bible, you have Mary Magdalene, you have the other Mary, as she is known. You have Peter, two disciples walking to the road on the road to Emmaus. You have all 11 original apostles except Judas. That new 12th apostle in Acts chapter 1. Seven of the apostles saw Jesus eating with them after dying. Thomas saw his nails, the holes in his hand and the spear in his side. The book of Acts begins like this. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs. There are so many proofs, Luke did not even feel the need to name them. So many proofs appearing to them, Acts 1, 3, for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Luke chapter 16. The short version is this. There is a rich man who goes to, dies and goes to Hades, and there's a Lazarus who dies as well. On the other side of the grave, Jesus tells the story that the rich man has an awakening, a realization. I missed it while I was alive. I missed it. And so he yells across the chasm to Abraham, Oh, Abraham, if you would just bring me a drop of water that I might just quench the thirst on my tongue... But in the story, Jesus makes it clear through Abraham's voice, this is a chasm that no man can cross. That time is over. And the man, the rich man, begins to beg to Abraham in the story, well, just, just let me go back to life. Let me, let me go back and tell my friends, thinking that if a, a resurrected man will go back and tell them about the grave and about eternity in life, that they will believe and Jesus, in Abraham's voice in the story, says, Listen, if they will not listen to Moses, and if they will not listen to the prophets, neither will they believe if they should see a man rise from the dead. Implying himself. 
You could look Jesus in the face, resurrected from the dead, as some of these men did, and say, nah, I'm not buying it. You could see it. Seeing it doesn't make anyone believe anything. Can I give you a reason why you do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead? A reason that you've truly tested. What's your criteria? What's your criteria for defining believable? And are you absolutely certain that the Bible and the witness of Jesus has not met that criteria? What I find so often talking with individuals about the Lord is they feel like their criteria has not been met, but they also cannot define their actual criteria. Now, know what would be enough. And Jesus himself said, I'll tell you, if you could look at a man standing in the face who rose from the dead, that wouldn't be enough. Why? Because of the very thing we were warned about. Our own hearts. Our own disbelief. Our own depravity. If you're not a Christian, consider your answer to this question. What do you have to say about Jesus standing there with Paul? Fairy tale, story, cute. Because the whole point is that Jesus did in fact die for the sins. If, if, Paul, if, if Jesus truly is alive and truly is standing with Paul in rejection, the condemnation of the council of Israel, then he really is the king. He really is the son of God. He really was crucified for your sins. Your sins. Jesus is, as Paul said, then the hope of resurrection. That's why Paul said he was on trial, not just with respect to the resurrection, but with reference to the hope. It's not just a fact to be believed, but a hope to treasure that Jesus has risen from the grave. He has fully, in fact, paid for our sins. And you have to answer that question today. Do you believe Christ has died and raised for your sins and that he is alive today? And so we crown him as we say. Finally, the violence. What did Jesus say to Paul? What did Jesus say to Paul? He tells him to do something and he explains why. He tells him, take courage. Chapter 23, verse 11. Jesus' instruction to Paul is take courage. It means be confident. When disciples are out on the boat in the storm in Mark chapter 14, the same word is translated in our ESV, take heart. And there Jesus adds, do not be afraid. Taking courage is as that lion, as it were, in the Wizard of Oz, who has become convinced, I am courageous. Psalm 18, verse 6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Church, what do we need in the face of persecution, in the face of hostility? We need the voice of the risen Christ, the gaze of the living Christ upon us, telling me and telling you, take Courage. Be confident. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid, church. As soon as you become a Christian, maybe today you're thinking about becoming a Christian. Let me just tell you, as soon as you do, you're going to be feeling a temptation to be afraid in the world. Take courage and don't be afraid. Where does that come from? Behind the curtain? No, it comes from Christ, risen from the dead, from Him, from His counsel and from his encouragement and from the fact of his resurrection what can man do to me who has been united with a man who has risen from the grave Christ risen from the dead is our courage 
Hear it from him today. And the other part of the message from Jesus is take courage. The second part is, well, Paul, you're not done. This has been a rough patch. You almost got tore to pieces. Take courage because we're going to go back out and go door to door again. We're going to do it again. There's going to be more of this. It's going to get worse, Paul. Don't lose courage tonight because you almost lost your life. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem. And you see here Jesus kind of responding to all of Paul's ministry in Jerusalem. Not just this council two nights ago. Just like you testified to me during the time that you were in Jerusalem. Now you're going to go do in Rome. This is Paul's, God's plan for Paul's life. To testify about Jesus in Rome and to go die there. But it is the call of every Christian to suffer. It's not only the Navy SEALs of Christianity who are called to suffer. Following Christ leads to suffering. This road needs your courage because opposition will come. And I think sometimes we think that kind of courage is a, a, a tight-fisted, big-chested courage and we can't even draw it up. And we almost get afraid that we won't be courageous enough when it comes. I think there's a, a picture in a man named Bob Fu who founded an organization called China Aid. Bob was also on that panel that I mentioned earlier about persecution. He lives in Texas. He moved to the United States in the 90s or 2000s, I believe, and started an organization on behalf of Chinese persecuted Christians. It was an honor to meet him in person and to hear his testimony. I have a copy of his book. I may bring one tonight and hand that out in our members' meeting. He wrote an article in our journal for us in our state convention, and I'll just share his testimony. I think a wonderful example of taking courage. He says, One day in 1996, after Chinese officials had imprisoned me for my stance on, on human rights and for taking part in the Tiananmen Square event, my back as well as my heart ached. Despite the pain that I felt from the hostile treatment the Chinese guards inflicted on me and others, and from missing Heidi, my wife, I felt so thankful to God for his power and presence that I wanted to sing. Without considering what my actions might cost, I cleared my throat and I began to begin singing a song from my underground house church days. Give thanks with a grateful heart. I mumbled, causing those around me, his fellow prisoners, at least momentarily, to break form and look at me. Typically, nothing usual usually happened during the days that we were detained. The most excitement that we saw was when someone readjusted their position or scratched their nose or sneezed or, and got severely beaten if the guard happened to be walking by. That day, however, the guard didn't seem to be near. And so I added the next few lines. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his son. And now let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. When I finished my song, I looked at the gigantic iron gate and waited for the guard to come in, swooping in with his electric baton. 
I'm not sure if he was on break or just not at his station. But since I hadn't been punished yet, I started my song again. To my surprise, another voice joined in with me. I couldn't see who it was, but at first the sound emanated from a few rows behind me. I just imagine how many people are in this room. Then another voice started singing from my left, and we sang, Give Thanks with a Grateful Heart, three times in a row. As we finished singing, the head security guard yelled at me, What did we tell you about sharing the gospel? You said not to speak a word of it, I replied. And yet, the guard said, You led the whole prison in your superstitious songs. Well, I didn't speak a word of it, I said. I sang it. Oh my God, give us some portion of that self-abandonment. Oh God, help us take heart. Believe, we believe you've risen from the dead. Help us respond to the warning with faith. Help us answer the question with belief. And help us take courage when violence arises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gospel that we have read and sung and heard today. Thank you for your kindness to send Christ to die for us, to rise from the dead. Thank you that we have heard of him and by your spirit been enlightened to believe in him. Help us be careful about our own hearts. Help us have faith. Help us take courage. All for your glory and our joy. In Christ's name. Amen.